Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. This podcast is based in large part on the book Born Ready, The Mixed Legacy of Len Byers. Some quotes are narrated by podcast producer and book author Dave Ungrady from interviews done for the book. Recordings for those comments were not available. Well, they're going to have number two pick. And uh, on top of being a champion, it was it was a nerve, it was orgasmic. You know, I'm telling you, people were so excited. He was clearly physically uh, dominant. He was um, he was mean. He had a mean mean on court uh, game, and uh, that was that was important. But he had to have the skill set to go with it. The Boston Celtics select Len Bias of the University of Maryland. Well, they're a good team, and they got a good uh, supporting players. I can go up there and sit on the bench, or whether they're going to play or not, and I learn a lot from uh, the players there, or learn a lot from playing myself. And defensively, you know, um, maybe you know, Lens picking up some of the tough defensive assignments as well. The Maryland Medical Examiner has now issued his report on the death of the college basketball star Len Bias. It confirms the worst suspicions. He died of heart failure because he used cocaine. We were really affected so so deeply by all of this that we there was no real way to measure the probabilities of what that was. We thought that uh, that uh, you know they were they would have been so well positioned to to prosper in the ensuing years. We're always thinking like you know what, how how might the NBA have been different had 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 he been around. For them to have this monster of a of a player, it would have it would have changed everything against the Celtics against the, uh, the Lakers. It would have changed it all. When I was in the NBA, I mean, they they definitely had a drug problem. Uh, you know, within the league, I remember, and it became a much more of a public discussion. Yeah, I think I think the NBA changed this whole mentality about drugs. It changed the NBA uh, drug policy. Um, all of a sudden, it was like now there was more people out looking for people who were getting high. I'm Kareem, the captain of the team. I don't need drugs. I got a higher thing. My sky hook makes the team look good, but there's a hook we got to shake from the neighborhood. Next on Len Bias, the mixed legacy, from dynasty to drought, how the death of Len Bias affected the Celtics and the NBA. Before selecting Len Bias with the second pick of the 1986 NBA draft, 
the Boston Celtics seemed destined to make a run at another dynasty. They had just won their third title in the decade. Led by Bill Russell and Bob Cousy, the Celtics raised green and white championship banners from the rafters at the Garden 11 times in 13 years in the 1950s and 1960s. In that 1986 draft, the Celtics traded the number two pick belonging to the Seattle Supersonics in exchange for guard Gerald Henderson. Drafting bias was viewed as one of the biggest steals in league history. The expectations and excitement of another title were heightened by the impending arrival of the two-time ACC Player of the Year. Jan Volk took over from the legendary Red Auerbach, the architect of the Celtics dynasty, as general manager in 1984. This bonus of the number two pick in the draft, thanks to this wonderful trade that Jan Volk had worked, no one on either side assuming the Sonics were going to stink bad enough that you'd get a really prime pick. They would have been very happy with 10, 11, 12, believe me. Well, they're going to have number two pick. And uh, on top of being a champion, it was it was a nerve it was orgasmic, and you know, I'm telling you, people were so excited. That's Bob Ryan, the legendary sports writer of the Boston Globe, who chronicled many of those great Celtic teams. The 1985-86 Celtics finished the regular season 67 and 15. In the playoffs, they won 15 of 18 games, including a sweep of the Milwaukee Bucks in the Eastern Conference Finals. Here's Ryan again. Then the 85-86 Celtics, that's when they were peaking. That's when they were totally kicking ass every night. And it was the greatest show on basketball earth at the time. With Len Bias, the Celtics would become younger, more athletic, more explosive. Bias would give them firepower off the bench that would take some of the pressure off aging veterans Larry Bird and Kevin McHale. Bias would fill the role that the Celtics had seemingly invented with Frank Ramsey, John Havlicek, and Don Nelson, the sixth man. Eventually, Bias would carry the mantle left behind by Bird, McHale, and Robert Parrish. Volk said Arabek, who still held the role of team president, liked instigators rather than retaliators. Many of the Celtics, in particular Bird, McHale, and Danny Ainge, fit that description. Bias would bring an even more imposing presence to the team. It, he was clearly physically uh, dominant. He was um, he was mean. He had a mean mean on court uh, game, and uh, that was that was important. But he had to have the skill set to go with it. He had such a uh, um, dominant uh, skill set as this, as as well as a dominant attitude. Just played hard. Boston Celtics. Select Len Bias of the University of Maryland. Yeah, I really was hoping that it was Boston. And my dream came true. Coach our back, well, the manager our back, and he told me that uh, he told me that I wasn't going to get much, I wasn't going to stop, but I was going to get a lot of playing time for I to be the sixth man. This is a great kid. As a matter of fact, you know, Larry Bird said that if we draft Bias, he's going to come up to the rookie camp. <laughs> That's right. He is very, very high on bias, as Casey was, and Jimmy, and and the owners, you know, Alan Cohn and Don Gasson. They're all high on him. He's the guy we wanted. We got him. Well, a lot of people are asking the question, how do you improve the best team in basketball? Is Len Bias the answer to that? <clears throat> well, he gives us a lot of support. He can play some guard. He can play some forward. He can play a power forward, a quick forward. He is the best athlete, in my opinion, in the whole draft. 
and he's going to really help this ball club. You said anybody's going to have trouble breaking into the Boston Celtics lineup. Oh, he knows Lenny that. Bias? He knows that. Is Lenny Bias going to uh, take the place of a Kevin McHale or Larry Bird? He knows that. But he'll get his playing time. Okay. But, uh, you know, time goes. You know, time goes. Guys get older, they get more playing time. We've had guys sit around for a while, except in this particular case, he's going to play. With the death of Bias, the Celtics never got that boost in intensity and youth to the roster. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Despite mourning the death of Bias, the Celtics did well on the court. They reached the NBA Finals again but lost to their West Coast doppelganger, the Los Angeles Lakers, in the 1987 Finals. The death of Bias exposed the physical fragility of Boston's foundation. Injuries began to impact the team's superstars and even some of the key bench players. That left the Celtics susceptible to the power and toughness of the Detroit Pistons and to the burgeoning majesty of the league's newest superstar, Michael Jordan of the Chicago Bulls. Volk said that Boston's trip to the finals in 1987 was something of a mirage, given the mounting injuries to Bird and others. We had uh, players uh, in their in their prime, all um, available, available and, and seemingly healthy. As it turns out, they weren't. That is, they there were injuries that followed, and that um, accelerated the impact of uh, Len's loss. We were a player short in, 90, in 87. We, but Kevin McHale had broken his um, uh, navicular bone. Bill Walton had broken his navicular bone. Um, we uh, Scott Wedman uh, had um, surgery uh, six games into the season. People forget how good he was, how good Scott Wedman was, and we lost we lost him for the season. Um, Robert um, uh, Parrish also had a bad ankle problem, and um, so we were we were struggling. Um, pretty when you when you say struggling we were in the finals <laughs> we we lost in six games we were not at, a, at at our at our at our best because of the injuries that we had we were one player short as great an offensive player bias was at maryland 
you tend to forget how great a defensive player he also was at key moments. Fans still talk about the reverse dunk he made to seal the win over North Carolina as a senior in 1986. But let's not forget that he stole the inbounds pass from Kenny Smith to set up the dunk, then blocked Smith's last shot later in overtime to help secure the win. Bias from outside, and he got it. Lynn Bias with 29. Oh, my! And he made the steal in a jam! What a play by Bias! Holy cow! Project that into the NBA, and you can see how Bias would have taken the pressure of Bird McHale on the defensive end as well. Here's Steve Bolpet, who covered the Celtics in those days for the Boston Herald. A big part about what made the Celtics was um, Kevin McHale's ability to guard the really good small forwards. Larry's not getting overworked, perhaps. Uh, Len's allowing them to play more up-tempo basketball, which is, you know, less abuse on the body uh, for everyone involved. Um, and defensively, you know, um, maybe, you know, Len's picking up some of the tough defensive assignments as well. Um, just, you know, uh, having that kind of a, uh, of a talent, um, lengthening out your rotation. The Pistons lost in seven games to the Lakers in the 1988 NBA Finals. Still, the bad boys from the Motor City shocked many by sweeping the Lakers in the 1989 Finals and then winning the title again in five games against the Trailblazers in 1990. That's when Jordan, in his seventh NBA season, took over the league. He led the Bulls to championships in the next three finals over the Lakers, Trailblazers, and Phoenix Suns. It was the first of his two three-peats in his career and a perfect 6-0 record in the finals. Many wonder how the NBA landscape might have been different after 1986 had Bias not only lived, but lived up to his potential. Perhaps most of those wondering were Celtics fans. Bob Ryan believes that the death of Bias and the death of Reggie Lewis seven years later decimated the NBA's most storied franchise for a long time. It wouldn't be until 2008 when the Celtics called themselves champions again. I thought that, the, that the, you know, they, were, they would have been so well positioned to, to prosper in the ensuing years. They were manpower shy. If they had had a player of the equivalent that we think that Reggie, that Len Bias would have been, I think they would have had a very good chance of beating the Lakers. They ran out of manpower. Thought it was a, and had a negative effect for upwards of a decade. Even some millennials understand the impact Bias would have had on the NBA had he lived. Millennials have only heard about or watched videos of Bias. Justin Tinsley of ESPN's The Undefeated learned early in his life about what he missed not watching Bias and what the Celtics and the NBA missed as well. How, how might the NBA have been different had, had, had he been around? You know, because for my generation, outside of the, 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 the Celtics championship in, in 2008, the Celtics have always just been this, a relic of, of the past, in a sense. They were this great franchise who, uh, of course, you know, guys like uh, Bill Russell and Casey Jones and, you know, Red Arbach, John Havlicek, but we were never around for that. In terms of that, that Celtic lore, that Celtic mystique, we never really saw that. John Sally met Bias at the five-star basketball camp. While at Georgia Tech, he played four years against Bias in the Atlantic Coast Conference. He feels the void left by his good friend's death could be felt throughout the NBA. 
for them to have this monster of a of a player, it would have it would have changed everything against the Lakers. It would have changed it all. Sally knows it's difficult to envision a rivalry between Jordan and anybody, let alone a guy who never played a second in the NBA. But he also knows what he witnessed while playing against Bias. You really can't compare anything to Michael. Len Bias would have been in the same, I guess, image on the same, um, same conversation. And I think if they would have had to split it and you were allowed to let Lenny do what he does, we see it differently. Ed Tapscott got to know Bias while coaching at American University in Washington. He's worked in the NBA for the past 30 years as a team executive for the Charlotte Bobcats, the New York Knicks, and the Washington Wizards. He's now a consultant for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Had Bias lived, would the trajectory of Jordan's career look any different? Here's Tapscott. And the Bird and Magic rivalry is what really started to drive the, the narratives and the storylines in the league. Well, think about the next era, which would have been Jordan Bias. Jordan never had the rival that Magic had in Bird and Bird had in Magic. Had Bias been in the league, Jordan may have had that rival, that Joe Frazier to Muhammad Ali. And how could that not have produced even more interest in, in the NBA and provided an even more competitive environment? Both Jordan and Bias were relative unknowns until their breakout performances at the five-star basketball camp when they were in high school. There were brief flashes of a budding rivalry when Jordan was a junior at North Carolina and Bias was a sophomore at Maryland. What kind of rivalry they might have had in the NBA is purely speculative. Since Jordan was a shooting guard and Bias a power forward, they likely would not have guarded each other. But that didn't stop the media from promoting rivalries between Magic Johnson and Jordan, or even Charles Barkley and Jordan. Jay Billis played against both Jordan and Bias during his own college career at Duke. I believe he would have been a legitimate uh, challenger to Jordan for best player in the league. Um, that's a tall order to, to say he would have been as good or better, but I'm, I believe that would have been the case. But, um, you know, it, it, it speaks to the level of the tragedy that you have to explain to younger people how good he was and direct them to, you know, old grainy video to, to confirm it. Um, you know, it's, it's profoundly sad that uh, that that legacy wasn't uh, he wasn't able to complete it because I think I think it would have been epic and uh, and we wouldn't have to explain it. There's also the question of what could have been. That's the one that has lingered for Justin Tinsley and his friends for years. They said the same thing about other greats and near greats who did reach some level of stardom in the NBA, but never got to the pinnacle because of injuries. And then there's bias, who never got to the NBA, period. If you ask people who were the biggest what-ifs in, in NBA history, naturally, um, some of the first names that are going to come to mind are people like Penny Hardaway. What if he could have stayed healthy? Or, or Grant Hill? Or in, in more recent times, Derrick Rose. But once you start to peel back the layers, Lynn Bias's name is always going to come up. We, we were robbed of seeing 
a potentially all-time great talent be that? Especially when when we talk about Michael Jordan, like who were Michael Jordan's biggest rivals? Who were who gave Mike hell back in the day? And it always comes to like we never got a chance to see him play, but from what I hear, Lim Bias was that deal. Like he was that dude. Bob Ryan believes it's a bit of hyperbole talking about bias the way we still gush about Jordan or even Bird or Magic for that matter. Ryan doesn't think bias would have belonged in the same conversation of NBA greats that also included Jerry West and Oscar Robertson or Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The point is that you have a, your own gradation, right? And uh, the Mount Olympus and, and the people that are, you know, on the waiting list for Mount Olympus. And then, you know, the three centers, naturally, Russell Wilton and Kareem. Uh, Oscar and Jerry at that point were still, you know, and then the current guys, the current guys at that time, you know, were Magic Michael. And, and well, actually, Michael yet. Michael hadn't, this is not Michael yet. It's Magic and Larry. And Michael's knocking on the door, which he did on that April 20th when he dropped the, the 63 points. I wasn't ready to put him on the top of the list, but I certainly thought he was going to be, an, you know, it was a dream pick to be an all-star. Let me just say before we forget that twice subsequently and, and over these years, Coach K has told me that the two greatest opponents he ever faced were Michael and Len Bias. And that's pretty high praise. Ryan thinks bias would have ended up a level down and mentions former Lakers star James Worthy as the kind of company bias might have kept. I think Worthy is a, as good a comparison of, as I've ever come up with as, as to, uh, to everything about him. And, uh, you know, maybe Worthy was a little bit quicker up and down the floor, but he was stronger, I think. And inside, there would have been, there would have been a trade-off there. CBS basketball analyst Clark Kellogg, who was the number one pick of the Indiana Pacers in 1982, mentions another perennial all-star when talking about bias. You know, in terms of his ability to get off the floor, um, Dominique Wilkins comes to mind. He's a contemporary of mine. He and I were part of the same 1979 high school class. And Neek had that same type of explosiveness and strength in the air. And that dynamic, explosive ability to get off the floor and finish. I think Len's shot was a little more polished than Dominique's coming out of college. Um, Dominique refined his shot as a pro. That, um, that exuberance, that dynamic um, bounceability, if you will, that yelium, I like to call it, the ability to rise and float, uh, Lynn had that. As with others who were hesitant to make the Jordan bias comparison, Kellogg points to a weakness about Bias's game that prevents him from putting Bias in Jordan's class. I thought Lynn had great athleticism in addition to um, pretty impressive refinement of his game and was going to only add to that. I think the one thing that I recall, never really saw him go coast to coast and maneuver with the ball. He was more of a couple of dribble guy, but heck, that's something that you can improve on. Bias is mentioned as a headliner in only one group, players who succumb to the temptation of drugs. In this case, cocaine in the NBA draft class known more for that than the number of all-stars it produced. The player drafted right after Bias was Chris Washburn of North Carolina State, whose NBA career lasted a total of 72 games because of his addiction to drugs. He was banned for life in 1989. His addiction to cocaine, heroin, and alcohol led to 14 different stints in rehab.
Bias and Washburn had plenty of company in that 1986 class. William Bedford and Roy Tarpley, the sixth and seventh overall picks respectively, also fell victim to the treacherous and tragic power cocaine and other drugs had on them. But Bias was the only one to die. Washburn claimed in episode three of this podcast series that Bias introduced him to cocaine in April of 1986. Here's Washburn who after years got clean and speaks to youngsters these days about the dangers of drugs. A lot of us was dabbling back then with it. Um, it was a trial and error period. You know, we, we were all young trying something different. We all thought we were supermen back then. Even before the 1986 draft, the NBA was dealing with a serious image problem stemming from some of the league's biggest stars watching their careers derailed by drugs. Tom McMillan, who was an All-American at Maryland a decade before Bias arrived, played for the Atlanta Hawks from 1977 to 1983. He witnessed the NBA's drug problem close up. The Hawks were not an outlier to this growing problem. Many players, including McMillan's former Maryland teammate John Lucas, saw their own careers damaged significantly by drugs. The Los Angeles Times reported in 1980 that between 40 and 70% of the NBA's players had at least tried cocaine. When I was in the NBA, I mean, they, they definitely had a drug problem. I remember we were staying over here at the uh, hotel over by, you know, Landover Road when we played the old Cap Center. I remember walking by the rooms one night, one night of my teammates, I could smell there was a lot of pot coming out of the room. And so there was, and you know, I remember one player was so drugged out one game he couldn't even play. They just had, they had sent him home. So there were there were a lot of incidents. And, and when Stern became commissioner, he had really, I mean, he kind of got to a zero tolerance position. And it took him a couple of years to get there. Here's John Sally. They knew everything about everybody. The NBA was changing. 1984, David Stern gets in and tells Michael Jordan, we're going to change this league. And he did. David Stern wrote the NBA's first drug testing policy in his role as the league's chief counsel. That was in 1983, a year before he succeeded Larry O'Brien as commissioner. It certainly wasn't enough of a deterrent for the 1986 draft class. Here's Jay Billis. You know, that was the drug era. I mean, the 1986 draft, you know, sadly, Len Bias wasn't the only one that drugs ruined. Uh, you know, William Bedford, Roy Tarpley, Chris Washburn. I mean, there was a long laundry list of, of players uh, that didn't suffer the same kind of tragedy as Len, but that had tragic outcomes, uh, or at least profoundly sad outcomes to their careers because of, of drug use. Longtime NBA executive Pat Williams was general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers when Bias was drafted by the Celtics. He became president of the expansion Orlando Magic the day after the 1986 draft. Williams says that most in his position were familiar with the effect marijuana had on players and were more concerned with pot. If anything, they were a bit clueless about cocaine, particularly crack cocaine. Bias's death changed that. We began to be uh, a lot more open uh, you know, within the league, I remember, and it became a much more of a public discussion. We had not been educated. And uh, and I think uh, 
as a GM, I, be, I began to read up on the subject and learn all that I could. And so at least I could be conversant about it and, um, and, and, and talk when it came up. But it was, uh, it was a very, very tough time in the league. And then when those 60, 86 draft picks kept falling, that's when NBA teams began looking more closely into the backgrounds of players they were thinking about drafting. Horace Ballmer helped teams do just that. Ballmer became head of security for the NBA in 1985. At that time, he says drugs were already a major concern in the league. He rated it a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10. Ballmer spent 20 years as a New York City police officer. He bragged that he was death on drug users. Here's podcast producer Dave Ungrady, who talked to Balmer for his book, Born Ready, The Mixed Legacy of Len Bias. Balmer told me, if a guy was using drugs in the NBA, you did not want to see me in the locker room. When I was interviewed for the job, I was told that we would try and eradicate drugs in the NBA. The concern was very high. My job was to protect the NBA, to visit and talk to as many people in drugs as I could, dealers, treatment centers, guys in jail, non-athletes. I wanted to know, how did you hook the athletes? And what was the first thing you did to him? Balmer talked with incoming rookies at the league's orientation program about the temptations and perils they faced. That included drug abuse. He told them selling points people would use to lure athletes to cocaine. Balmer told me, they said it was better than heroin and you could not get addicted to it. They thought it would not hurt the body and that it was recreational. They were told it would get you nice and high and don't worry about it. It won't hurt you. Athletes were told by people selling it that you can use the drug during the off season and you can walk away from it anytime you wanted to. You won't become addicted to it. If you went to a fabulous party, they'd put it out just like they'd put out liquor. Cocaine had become the Hollywood drug. A bowl of cocaine was at every party you went to. Balmer claims women would try to attract high-salary athletes as regular drug customers by getting them hooked on cocaine. Balmer told me one athlete, a boxer, was turned on by a beautiful girl. She would put cocaine in his mouth when they kissed to get him hooked, and the boxer would become a customer. Kellogg, whose own promising NBA career was cut short by knee injuries after only five years, saw how Ballmer and his security staff became a more integral part of how the NBA investigated the backgrounds of its future stars. Yeah, I think there was an amplification of that. And it was not just the Lynn Bias component. That clearly was part of it. But yeah, it did change. And the climate was such. The war on drugs and the crack uh, epidemic was starting to grow speed. Um, late, mid, late 80s into the 90s. So I think that all probably factored into how the NBA started to look at maybe digging a little deeper into the background of um, potential draft choices. John Sally saw that as well after his friend died. Yeah, I think, I think the NBA changed his whole mentality about drugs because of the way Len, Len Bias died. The, for one of the up-and-coming stars to die from a cocaine overdose, it changed the NBA uh, drug policies. 
um, all of a sudden it was like now there was more people out looking for people who were getting high. There were more guys going going down and getting in trouble for it. Before, as I understand it, the NBA was said to be too black, too drug infested. Now they were cleaning it up. They started getting more and more European players and literally they were testing crazy places for drugs. So the NBA started having meetings that were mandatory. $5,000 out of your check, $10,000 out of your check if you missed the drug meeting. I mean, the NBA jumped on it, said, this is not going to happen. We're not going to be known as a drug league. Leave that to the, uh, to baseball. They, they were so serious about getting rid of this drug game. One way the NBA tried to educate players about the perils of drug abuse was through its orientation program. The program began in 1986. Satch Sanders won eight NBA titles with the Celtics in the 1960s. The league recruited Sanders to start the program. We wanted to get something going so the players would get an insight into what, just what being a professional is like when you're talking about coming into the NBA. When, when we were running the rookie program, that was, we used to run a few days, uh, almost a week. And the name of the game was to deal with the do's and the don'ts in the NBA. Agents, how to deal with them, finance, uh, think in terms of finishing school. We wanted players to really go back to school as best they can and as quickly as they can. We also had an internship program that we were trying to get players to, to get some work experience. At that time, Sanders recalls that the main drug concern for the NBA was marijuana use. The league hired therapists in each NBA city to talk with players if needed. The death of Bias in June 1986 prompted the league to adjust the focus of the program. It's one thing to have a program. All of a sudden you have your first draft choice. And the first round draft choice die from uh, cocaine overdose. I mean, that everybody wanted all the press, all the media wanted to know what we what we were doing. That's that's one of the things that gave the program, the player program department, a lot of uh, a lot of press. They they certainly wanted to spotlight the drug program, which they were already aware of. Sanders claims the death of bias did impact the players, but not enough to keep them from using cocaine. It certainly had an impact on on on, on players. It, uh, you know, a lot of folks were well aware of this young man's talent. Everybody who came in contact with him, like players were talking about him, how this kid could be the second coming of a uh, of a uh, Michael Jordan type player. That's the kind of skill level, physical skill level, folks thought he had. Players were just shocked that this could happen. Firstly, no one was aware that this young man had any experience at all where drugs were concerned. That was not his reputation. So, you know, people were just uh, just put out by the fact that not only was he involved in drugs, but had an overdose. That was the talk of the talk of the league, and certainly the talk of the town to a couple of years and the players start coming forward saying I was, I'm going to change up because of Len Byers. No. No, didn't get that. Players didn't react as if to say, hey, 
I'm gonna stop stop doing what I'm doing, mm-hmm. cocaine wise, because I could be another Len Bias. That did not happen. But something else did happen, and it involved Len's mother, Lonise Bias. Lonise Bias, the mother. We did bring her in to talk to our rookie programs, and she made a serious impact on the young players coming in the league after uh, Len Bias' death. I mean, she was a very impactful speaker. We will have more on that part of the story in a later episode that focuses on Lonise Bias. And one other thing happened, something that more directly related Len's story to drug abuse. I was working at the creative arts team at New York University, and our company had created a show uh, loosely based on uh, the death of Len Bias, but focused primarily to look at a young basketball player and the influence of the of the street versus uh, uh, the potential for a successful career and then how drugs took him down. In the end, it's the athlete, high on the promise of stardom, who trades in his dreams for drugs and drugs for his life. So, just like you're doing now. Oh, don't you try to jump into my league, little brother. You would have jumped me, all right? And what I do is pure. You hear me? I can manage I know that that show was actually based on the issue uh, on Len Bias' death. That's Zachary Minor, a public speaker and executive coach. In the 1980s, he was the director of high school programs with the creative arts team at New York University. In that role, he helped produce the show that catapulted the Len Bias story into the cultural mainstream. Soon after the play began, the NBA came calling. We were again doing the show in the New York City public schools when the Today Show with Brian Gumbel and Katie Couric highlighted it on uh, one of their morning shows. And uh, that's when the league called us to be a part of their rookie transition program. At this school in Washington Heights, This troupe of actor-teachers is staging a drama. It's called Home Court. It's a play about an inner-city family that's striving to beat the odds, striving to make good in a time when many homes are being pulled apart by drugs, which I should notice based not too loosely on the tragedy of of Len Bias. That's Bryant Gumbel, a former host of NBC's Today Show from a segment in 1988. Eugene Key played the part of Bias. He recalled the impact the play had on NBA players in a conversation with podcast producer Dave Ungrady. I'll 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 tell you this, Dave. When you get a standing ovation from guys that are like six, seven, it's really a standing ovation. You know what I mean? <laughs> After the shoot, see these guys get up, and it's like the tallest trees. <laughs> it just took me by surprise, you know. And we also did the workshop afterwards where they were questioning my character. And I do remember one time where. Uh, it was really, really great. It was just really good. It was really intense. And they were really focused on their questions and everything about what my character was doing. And I really felt really good afterwards. I, I really did. We will feature more about that play in a later segment about the culture of Len Bias. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off, grand slam, or a base hit to center field. 
Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts. Avito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rookies were not the only ones caught up in the anti-drug message promoted by the league in the late 1980s. The team that beat the Celtics in the 1987 NBA Finals, the Lakers, found a way to promote the message. They recorded a rap video later that year. First up, Hall of Fame center, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I'm Kareem, the captain of the team. I don't need drugs, I got a higher thing. My sky hook makes the team look good, but there's a hook we gotta shake from the neighborhood. Next, another Hall of Famer, Magic Johnson. I'm, I'm the magic man with the Midas touch. Gotta play the right way to keep them moving up. It seems that life costs boys day, but drugs are the price I can't afford to pay. Finally, Adrian Branch, a teammate of Len Bias at Maryland. Adrian Branch, I'm in the stands against the junk. I give Ryan a chance, so let's cut the clock man's money back and tell him to hit the road. There were enough great players who made headlines with their talents on the court to help overcome the drug label that had plagued the NBA for nearly a decade. One that comes to mind, Michael Jordan. He was able to stay as high above the NBA drug fray as he did above the rim. And he became arguably the best player in the history of the league. Could Bias, had he lived, done the same? Yeah, he was a god on the court, brother. (laughs) (laughs) He was a god on the court. God, Jesus, and the devil right there. He He was the holy trinity on your ass. As for the Celtics, they picked a local college star as their first round selection in the 1987 draft. That was Reggie Lewis of Northeastern University in Boston, the 22nd overall pick. Lewis would develop into the team's next star as age and injuries and the void left by Bias's death impacted the Celtics. He became team captain, the face of what had become a fading franchise. Then Lewis collapsed during a playoff game in 1993. He was diagnosed with a heart condition. After getting clear to resume his career, Lewis died after playing in a pickup game in June of that year. The Celtics dynasty was over and the drought was in full force. It would not end until the Celtics won the NBA title in 2008. Here's Ryan again, talking about what happened to the team after Bias's death. He was viewed as the turnaround 
good luck charm, you know, that they, they needed to, to get uh, back on, on track for, in that regard. As turned out, he started out to be the beginning of the bad karma that lasted over 20 years. Next on them by The Mixed Legacy. Lynn had, 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 um, had done drugs or cocaine prior to. That's crazy. But I will tell you this, uh, I would go on trial and deny that. I'm gonna quit because they were they were blaming Lefty. Said it was his fault. in that control one. And Lefty can't be with us 24 hours a day. Sure. And it's 12 of us, and it's ridiculous. And uh, they made him escape. Goes, you know, to this day I I I don't understand why they did that. And I, I, that's what that's what pissed me off the most. You know, before the details start coming out about what happened, Lenny. His posture changed. He was rounded shoulders and he never looked up anymore. His smile was gone. He was, I think he was deeply saddened and deeply affected um, by Glenn's death. This segment was produced by Dave Ungrady and Don Marcus. It was written and edited by Don Marcus. The narrator was Don Marcus. Technical production was provided by Octagon Entertainment. Production assistance was produced by Kevin McNulty, Tino Quagliata, Lauren Roche, Georgia Brun, Casey Fair, Jamal Williams, Kelsey Mannix, and Enzo Alvarenga. Matt Dewhurst is providing the social media assistance. Some content provided by the office of Senator Dick Durbin and from the Drug Policy Alliance. Special thanks to the University of Maryland and American University for providing insights. The Decision Education Foundation is a content and promotional partner of this podcast series. For more information, go to gogradymedia.com. This has been a production of Go Grady Media and the 8th Side Network. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. The warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.